0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world for the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm back to talk about the only topic that anyone's really thinking about because we're all living through it and that is the coronavirus. But whereas last time we spoke about what it means for the European project and how Europeans are coping with it now that they've become the global centre of this pandemic. This week, we're going to talk about the global impact of the coronavirus, what it means for geopolitics, what it means for all the regions of the world where ECFR is active, from China, from Russia, for Middle East and North Africa, but also what it means for the global system. To help us make sense of these big questions, we have an all-star cast from right across ECFR. From Berlin, we are joined by Janka Ertl, who is the head of our Asia programme. From Paris, by Nico Popescu, who is the head of our wider Europe programme. From Brussels, by Julian Barnes-Dacey, who's the head of our Middle East and North Africa programme. And from somewhere in La France Profonde, we have Susie Dennison, who is the head of our European Power programme. So... Last week, we did go into many of the questions which have been raised within Europe, but there are a whole series of global questions. This is a time when we're seeing competing narratives between the case for walls versus international cooperation. There are going to be fights about saving jobs versus saving lives, about who to save, the young or the old. What are strategic assets? Can we save global value chains? Is this a time for big government, or will governments make things worse? big data authoritarian states better able to cope with this than democracies? Is this a time for experts like us or should we listen more to the wisdom of the crowds? Well, we're going to go into all of this and maybe some other questions as well. And maybe just to get us started, given that this crisis did originally start with China and China is now becoming one of the central players in this battle of narratives, maybe Yanka as a China expert, you can get us going. What do the Chinese think about the current phase of the crisis and looking out from China, how are they seeing their challenges now that they seem to be able to to emerge from a slightly flatter curve on the health front?
1: For now, one can say the preliminary um, result is the crisis seems largely contained in China and life in China and even in the epicentre of the crisis in, in the city of Wuhan, it is kind of slowly kicking back into normal. And we have to kind of look back that Wuhan was locked down on January 23rd so that's eight weeks ago. So maybe for all of us that we're kind of I'm still in the in the early days of this, this is the kind of timeframe that we're looking at. And as the Hong Kong case has shown, where the crisis seemed contained, and then a number of new cases bubbled up again, that were also brought in from the outside, this is also a very preliminary result at the moment. So normalcy is a relative term these days. A number of severe restrictions will remain in place in China for some time to come, because that one headline that, that Beijing does not want to see is... You know, China had the health crisis under control until it didn't. So it kind of needs to show that um, this is really kind of a sustainable solution when the economy slowly kicks in, when people get back to work, when the production can start again. Now that the health crisis seems sort of contained, Beijing will have to grapple with a huge economic crisis. It has quite some magnitude because of the enormous shutdown of this huge economy. and it's we were experiencing some supply side problems here from China's shutdown. Uh, now China is going to face a number of demand side problems just because of the global economy contracting. And it simultaneously has to do a sort of reputational damage control because of the way the narrative about the crisis is emerging. And that has resulted in a massive propaganda campaign from the Chinese side. People have said it's kind of rewriting the present, not only rewriting the past. And it's trying to get on top of this, trying to show that it's a responsible actor.
0: So, Yanka, the... Battle now has gone into this kind of global attempt to shape how people are talking about the, the crisis. The Chinese foreign minister said that his government set a new standard for global efforts against the epidemic. Can you talk a bit about some of the things that the Chinese are doing, sending masks to different countries, offering to send doctors trying to benefit from their ability to to share their experiences
1: there is a lot to learn from the Chinese experience so obviously there is a lot of medical cooperation at the moment which is kind of going into the research part of things which it's kind of to decrypt where how vaccines and how medication can look at and it's very important to share medical data from the Chinese cases with the rest of the world and that cooperation is actually going quite well we still need greater transparency about how the crisis has unfolded that is relatively difficult for for a system like China to provide full transparency in that regard. And the propaganda effort that you were talking about is the big boohoo that is made around Chinese aid and assistance that is delivered. Not all of this is actual aid. A lot of this are purchases by countries and China is delivering mass and medical gear, protective equipment, but it is the way it is done has been criticized quite a bit um, in international media. So whereas in Italy, for example, at first there was a huge outcry about a lack of European assistance, then China was sending doctors and was sending uh, masks and was sending protective gear. Um, and it was lauded by a vast majority of people and saying, wow, China is helping Europe in times of need. But it's not that easy, because what China is delivering at the moment is like vastly masks and protective gear. A lot of this is produced in China. And China has been hoarding a lot of this over the past few months as well. So there's a global shortage because uh, a lot of the equipment is actually in China at the moment. And, and it is China's responsibility to also provide the world market in times of need with these products. The question is, how do you perform that? When Europe sent aid to China in the early days of the crisis, then it just sent 56 tons of aid to China. There you go. There was no big media reporting about it. In China, there seems to be a need to make a really big show out of this. And the question is where that will actually work or whether it will backfire in the end.
0: So NICU, normally when people are talking about disinformation and the battle for narratives and people promoting authoritarianism, they're talking about Russia, not China. What's Russia doing during the
2: crisis? I think when we talk about propaganda and the battle of narratives, there's a big qualitative difference between what Russian information operations are and Chinese ones. The Chinese effort is very much a kind of positive, self-aggrandizing if you want, but it's an attempt to show the image of a China that is helping Italy, is helping Serbia, Ukraine, and plenty of other places. When you look at the case of Russian media coverage of these efforts, most of it is actually very bitter. There's not much Russia can show in terms of helping other countries or managing the crisis itself. So a lot of it is just plain bitter anti-EU attacks and propaganda on how Europe is disintegrating, how there is no Schengen, there is no Eurozone, there is no solidarity, how the Chinese and the Russians are coming before the rest of the other Europeans to help Italy. So a lot of it is just negative attacks on the European Union. When you look at the situation inside Russia, then Russia is in a pretty confusing and actually quite vulnerable moment, both politically and economically. The oil prices have gone down because of the coronavirus generated economic crisis, but because also Russia failed to agree with the rest of OPEC on trying to save whatever they could do from this decrease in oil prices. So now oil price went very low into $25, $30, but are stories that Saudi Arabia is actually undercutting the Russian presence on the European oil market by giving huge discounts to European buyers of Saudi oil. So there's a kind of big mini price war between Russia and Saudi Arabia. And, you know, many of us remember those very friendly, uh, almost hugs between Mohammed bin Salman and Putin, but actually none of that helps now when the Saudis are undercutting the Russian oil markets, which tended traditionally to buy Russian oil. So there's a problem there. The ruble in Russia lost 25% in the last week, which is a pretty big loss. And then the Russians, they pretend that on the 22nd of April, They will hold these national consultations about the change of constitutions, which would also allow Putin to remain in power at least until 2036. So partly because of that, they are for now minimizing the effects of the crisis in Russia. It's also true that Russia is still less affected than the rest of Europe, but probably the coronavirus crisis will hit Russia the next two, three weeks quite hard. And then they will have a problem also on whether to hold these public consultations, which is supposed to approve the changing of the constitution or not. So basically, both on the economic and political front, the Russian authorities are in a pretty dangerous and difficult moment.
0: Gillian, most of the time when we talk about crises on this podcast, it's the Middle East and North Africa that is filling up our time. How has the crisis affected that region? I mean, Niku talked a bit about the the Saudi Russian spat, but what else is going on in in the Middle East and North Africa?
3: So I think For the moment, there are two stories unfolding. One is Iran, and Iran has obviously emerged as one of the epicenters of of the crisis. You've had, I think, uh, now more than 2,000 Iranians killed by the virus. Clearly, there's a a situation there which which has been incredibly hard to, to manage and control. The rest of the region, not so much. Actually, numbers are fairly low. Um, You haven't seen a kind of dramatic spread of the virus as of yet, despite kind of strong linkages between Iran and Iraq and Lebanon and Syria and so forth. The numbers are just beginning to rise now. I think that the real concern about the Middle East is is where this heads, because um, as you think about the need to respond, to try and contain the virus, it's hard to imagine that the Middle East has a capability really to do that. Amidst, you know, hollowed out, gutted states, Weak, fragile political leadership, you know, lack of medical facilities, civil war contestation, refugee camps where refugees live on top of each other in in, in conditions that are just prime for for the spread of the disease. So there's a real concern that that we haven't seen the spread into the Arab world in great magnitude. But that it it's about to get explosive, and at that point, it will be incredibly hard to manage. Uh, the states will really struggle immensely, and, and the health implications will, will be catastrophic. But I think that there's another story, which is you know, this is just one crisis on top of a multitude of crises economic, political conflict, as I mentioned. And it, it, it really raises the question of, is this what just another element that pushes the region over the edge, particularly if you put it alongside the, the kind of collapse of oil prices, which has gutted finances in Saudi Arabia and Iraq, aid to countries like Jordan, Lebanon, Egypt. How are these countries going to respond and manage an economic shock, which really risks pushing them over the edge. Their structural deficiencies are so grave. Demographic numbers all pointing in the wrong direction. So I'm, I'm extremely worried that not only is there an immediate kind of health implication, but this is a crisis on top of multiple crises that, that really just pushes these countries, or many of these countries, into another vicious spiral downwards. And, you know, how, how long can they keep picking themselves up, trying to recover after all they've been through over the past decade? Well, that's all quite worrying.
0: Susie, you've been sort of looking at how the global system's been coping with the virus so far, but also what the implications are for the multilateral system coming out of it in the in the post- Corona world. What are your initial thoughts on this?
4: Well, I think what's interesting on this front is that we've been warned by the medical community about the the sort of the the risk of a a global pandemic of this type for for a long time. And I think in a lot of ways, this is something that the world has been expecting. Um, Health security has been kind of rising as a theme and has has become sort of increasingly part of the way that, yeah, we think about the security architecture. But on the other hand, I don't think that institutions and and sort of leading global actors have been behaving towards the international institutions as if this was coming. And, And I think this is primarily about the US, which we've seen kind of disengage drastically uh, under Trump from from international institutions. But not only, the WHO, which we've all sort of had to swat up on over the last few weeks to kind of to understand as as part of that institutional um, architecture, I think is, is built as a system which doesn't really do global leadership itself it leads through the member state and and therefore the sort of the fact the traditional multilateralists of, of not being investing as significantly as in, in terms of sort of the diplomatic resource around um, the WHO if not kind of in terms of their direct payments to it I think shows that um, that as the structure currently works it, it can't really respond so we've got a situation where the WHO is kind of ...calling for a group of G20 nations this week to to work together... Um, on how to kind of boost production of protective equipment, uh, avoiding expert bans and, and and look at how to um, ensure that distribution globally um, is, is done on the basis of need. But what really matters is how nations engage with that discussion and what, what they come up with. Because, you know, if, if we look at previous examples of, of health crises, which um, I think in the end won't be, won't be anything like on, on the scale that we're facing now, but if you look at Ebola in 2014, it was more a question of member state coalitions led by the US, led by um, private foundations and so on that were developing the solutions to the crisis and, and what we've got now is a situation where you're not getting that leadership from the US you know what, what you got instead was a very clear message from Trump with his border closure to, to anyone from Schengen very early on that this was not a role that he was looking to play that may change that may evolve but that's certainly the case for now and I think what's interesting listening to Yanka earlier on is when thinking about China is the extent to which their sort of game plan around sort of owning the narrative on what's happened in this crisis and and who's played what role is about sort of an immediate response, self aggrandizing as Niku called it, or whether it's more about sort of using this opportunity to show that actually the world isn't about multilateral systems anymore. It's about individual players, the way that they choose to cooperate um, with each other, the aid that they choose to give and so on and so forth. And whether this might be kind of shaping a more Chinese world, sort of using the dance to kind of show that's what it is.
0: But part of the Chinese world has been the systematic takeover of much of the UN system, including the WHO, hasn't it, Juncker?
1: Yeah, at least it has been very helpful to be part of this system for China, and they have been kind of slowly rewriting the rules within a multilateral order that other players have paid less attention to. Uh, The United States has pulled out of it more. Even Europe has paid less attention to a lot of the specialized agencies. So China's control over the WHO, or China's kind of role in the WHO, is actually quite significant and has been able to also shape the narrative that has been coming out of the WHO, which is very, very troubling if we think that we believe that this institution is one of the, you know, it's an authority in global health. It's the one institution we go to for credible information, but it's only as credible as the input that it gets from the member states. And it's kind of been a revealing moment for the WHO as well, in the limits of its potential for governance in, in the global space in the global health space. And there will be a number of you know, reforms or at least thoughts about the future of the WHO after this crisis, pretty sure, because it. I mean, it used to affect always countries that were not European or not the US. So the pressure on, on the Western countries to actually reform these institutions to live up to their task was relatively limited. I think there's a lot more agency in the West now to make these institutions work better um, and more in their interest as well.
0: So what are the main criticisms of what China's done in the WHO for people who haven't been following it as closely as you?
1: So the main criticism has been that the information that has been provided to the WHO wasn't transparent enough and that the WHO has downplayed the threat that was coming, that was coming out of China. It has downplayed the potential for this pandemic to not make China mad, basically, because it was obviously a problem for a reputation of of China. So that was like the main initial beginning ever since the process of Actually, kind of dealing with a pandemic has started. The normal mechanisms of the WHO have kicked in more, and and it has kind of been governing what it should be doing. But I think the outset problem was that there is a really big issue in terms of the information flows and the leverage that an institution like that has. If it's not provided with the right information, and if it then chooses not to overplay a threat then the international response to a crisis is obviously less dramatic. And in this case, it should have been a little more dramatic to contain the crisis earlier on.
0: Obviously, in the last few weeks, much of the attention has been focused on the immediate task of trying to flatten the curve to prepare as many ventilators and hospital beds as possible for for different citizens to get social distancing started. But if we look beyond this crisis and think about what sort of geopolitical world it's going to leave, it'd be really interesting maybe just to go around and hear from you all both generally, but also particularly for the part of the world that you follow, what you think the the kind of long tail of Corona is going to be in terms of the, the geopolitics of, of the world.
4: Maybe I can um, come in on this from from the point of view of of Europe as a whole. I mean, I think, as you say, we're in a very kind of national moment right now. And uh, rightly so, because I think that legitimacy for the kinds of measures that that we're seeing from governments to kind of try and change behaviour, that, you know, that that can only really be done at national level. But I think at, at sort of the level of the European project, what is important is that we we sort of really see them sort of try to to look forward to to the recovery and sort of try to own that response, both on the the economic side, where I think there are a lot of lessons to be learnt from the experience of the 2008 financial crisis and so on, where Europe needs to be kind of on the front foot to avoid being the kind of the bad cop to the member states' good cop as we go through what will be an extremely difficult um, time. But I think also um, in in terms of thinking about future future crises because what the, the tensions we're seeing within the European Union I, what's so dangerous about them now is that they're sort of exacerbating a number of debates about borders about increasing authoritarianism um, within member states and so on that, that were there anyway and so I think this does pose kind of real risk to the project going forward and so I think it'd be important for, for the EU institutions to think about how they can kind of push a, a sort of a fairness um, agenda as part of the recovery in order not to be sort of Um, tainted by this process but also think about coordination for future crises because we're starting to see some measures coming through now you know the commission's announced uh, that it's creating a stock of of, of medical equipment for distribution in the future and so on but i think sort of defining what that role is within a european context will be really important for next time around
2: I think we might have another problem on the European front of doing geopolitics. We all heard that in the first few months of Ursula von der Leyen's commission, there was a big push to make the case for geopolitical Europe and a big push to advocate for a much more active and proactive pursuit of environmentally friendly policies. And now to all of that push, what? I think we are adding this this almost inevitable push to invest much more into healthcare, develop capacities, policies, dedicate funds to that. And that is crowding quite a lot of the European set of priorities for the European Commission. And it's not clear to what extent the European Union will have resources to dedicate to all of that. I think another kind of related issue is that in the aftermath of this crisis, I think the most herbivorous instincts of European foreign policy will be reinforced. Because now, after coronavirus, it will be very, very easy to say, you know, we need more multilateralism, we need more investments in healthcare. And that is all very right. It's just that pretty much all the other powers in the world will not behave according to to the same instincts. They are already pursuing a pretty aggressive geopolitical agenda against the EU, even during the crisis. And of course, we spoke about Russian and Chinese propaganda, US lack of leadership role in this. But all of that will continue. No one else is likely to go down and, you know, significantly cut defense spending or behave much less aggressively in in foreign policy. So we might have a missed. Match with the Europeans going down this very multilateralist, butter centered spending instincts, and it will be much more difficult to make the case for Europe to sustain and continue its attempts to become more geopolitically relevant. So you face the end of Europe's geopolitical moment? I don't think, but I think that's a kind of important moment where the European instinct which also already much more pacifistic (laughs) and um, complacent, if you want, about the state of the world will only be reinforced by this health uh, urgency.
3: Is that your fear as well, Julian? I would agree with that completely. And, I, you know, this, this idea that we'll think about kind of healthcare and multilateralism, but then then the geopolitics of the near neighbourhood will be neglected, I think is completely true. I mean, already we at ECFR struggle to try and get European attention to focus on the Middle East and, and to engage Europeans in a way that they are more activists. And it's just incredibly hard, either in terms of the focus that, that Nico is talking about, but, but also just the bandwidth. Which are the European states that are going to think about trying to address a civil war in Libya, we're going to think about trying to stabilize the Levant so all of these issues are going to see even further degree of European disengagement I think we're going to retreat in into the sense of a kind of fortress Europe you know how do we deal with refugees we cut more deals with Turkey we let authoritarian leaders reassert themselves because they're the only ones that can manage and of course authoritarian leaders across the Middle East and no doubt elsewhere will be using exploiting the whole coronavirus situation to legitimize their enforcement kind of reassertion of power as we already see in several places so I think that is all very worrying and then of course you add the populist narrative that is going to flow over this and I think there will be a contradiction though between what Niku talks about in terms of kind of the the soft European approach multilateralism and so forth and the populist pushback which will mean that on issues like refugees and support to to neighbourhood states there will be very little political appetite to to really step up there and engage in a way that kind of Europeans would have asserted themselves in in previous years in a more values-based dynamic.
0: What do you think, Janka, we started with you looking at how the world looked from China. Is China seeing also potentially a a waning of Europe's geopolitical appetite as as we become increasingly desperate? Or do you think that uh, actually, from a Chinese perspective, some of the the more kind of sovereigntist trends which have been unleashed by this crisis could be quite challenging?
1: I think there's about at least two scenarios that, that one can at the moment imagine. The one is that China gains influence and goes on a big shopping spree around the world also for companies that are on the market at the moment and that can be acquired, pushes for tech leadership, 5G rollout um, in China is currently one of the top stimulus measures for the domestic economy. And this success then shapes a certain narrative. And, and the US is, is doing a good job of sidelining itself. So it could make a Chinese centric order in which Europe has to redefine its relationship to China completely new um, and has to see what, what effect that has on the interests that Europe wants to pursue in a multilateral, et cetera, order. The other scenario that one can envisage is that there's a second wave of coronavirus in China as well, or that the Chinese economy does not kick back as quickly as we think. And that has a huge, that we see a huge financial property crisis in China, that we see a systematic crisis in China. All of that is still possible because we're at a stage right now where. Anything seems possible. And that's really hard to say which scenario would be worse for Europe. Actually, European dependency on trade with China could, at a moment where China's economy is kicking back in, be an asset for Europe and make Europe a little stronger and make Europe emerge quicker from this crisis um, and could make all the decoupling tendencies that come from the US be a little less relevant. But it's really too early to tell
0: okay well we're definitely going to come back to these topics particularly to focus more on the whole question about the, the world after the corona crisis and to go into much more detail on all these different areas but for now we have one thing left to do on this podcast which is to talk about our bookshelves and what's on them Susie do you want to go first what's on your bookshelf at the moment?
4: I'd like to put a poem forward because living in confi- under confinement, I've been finding that I'm wishing away this period of my life to um, a much greater extent than, than I should. And kind of, you know, we're all looking forward to, to when when this will finish. So, a poem that I keep coming back to to remind myself that it's important to try and find the positives in, in this situation and, and focus on each day as it comes is by Benjamin Zephaniah, and it's called "Happy Every Day."
0: Aww. <laughs> Thank you for being a bit less depressing than some of the other people on this podcast. All right, who wants to go next?
3: It's hard to follow that by Susie, to be honest. I'm entirely predictable. I'm reading a new biography of MBS, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the, the crown prince of, of Saudi Arabia, who has wrested control of the kingdom, pushed aside um, his elders and is assertively trying to remake the kingdom. Uh, pushing Saudi Arabia strongly across the region, launching oil price wars, creating um, a lot of uncertainty and uh, instability, one might argue, across the region. And, and Ben Hubbard, the, the New York Times Middle East correspondent, has just uh, put out a new biography of him. So it, it traces in a, the, the tale of, of, of his kind of taking, asserting himself after his father became king and, and, and what that has looked like in, in the last couple of years as he, he's really kind of made it all about him. Great. What's on your book, Shavniku?
2: I am as predictable as Julian. So I I just started reading a book by Andy Greenberg called Sandworm. It's about Russian hackers, but he also tries to make a kind of forward analysis of which different hacking groups, how do they behave differently, what kind of operations they do and what's their affiliation with different bits of the Russian security apparatus. And I'm also reading a book called The Pursuit of Power by William McNeil, published in 1984. It's always good to take a somewhat longer-term view about issues of power. And that usually makes me much more optimistic about today than, than reading just news or just current affairs books. What about you, Janka?
1: I needed something that suits the apocalyptic mood because the sunshine outside doesn't really cut it for me at the moment. So I have uh, turned to a fantastic suggestion from a tech colleague from Open Society Foundation who suggested to me Weapons of Mass Destruction, a book about... By
0: Cathy um, O'Neill.
1: Correct. And it's a 2016 book and I hadn't read it. And I thought this is the perfect time to read up on how algorithms can destroy your life and democracy on top of it.
0: Fantastic. So I've got two uh, pandemic related recommendations. I've got a book that's just arrived in the post today called The Psychology of Pandemics, Preparing for the Next Global Outbreak of Infectious Disease by Stephen Taylor. And I also have a very interesting blog post, which Josette Burrell, the EU's foreign policy guru, has just written called the coronavirus pandemic and the new world it is creating but if at times i have kind of also had more existential leanings. And I've been trying to remember poems that I learned as a precocious teenager and been spending quite a lot of time trying to recite in my mind's eye the um, Love Song of Jalford Prufrock by T.S. Eliot. Anyway, that's probably enough existential musings for the afternoon. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please let other people know about it by writing on our social media pages or your own. Above all, using this opportunity to give us a rating and review on whatever platform you you've used to download this podcast on but for now from Susie Dennison, Janka Ertler, Julian Barnes-Dacey, Niku Popescu and myself Mark Leonard it's goodbye. We'll put links to all the publications we mentioned up on our podcast at www.ecfr.eu slash podcast. The research for ECFR's podcast is Valeria Baranikova and our editor is Malina Riedel.